morning, my name's James, I'm one of the pastors here at FEC, and I discovered something amazing this morning when I was flicking through something on my phone. If I'm correct, it was eight years ago this weekend was the first time I ever stood up here to preach, I was so terrified of you all, and I still am. <laughs> Do you ever remember somebody asking you to let go? I mean, it could be a situation, just let go of it, or maybe you literally were holding on to something, and they wanted you to let go and make a jump. One of the authors that I like reading is a Dutch priest called Henry Nouwen, who has spent most of his life serving the marginalized. And he writes some amazing things that lead people closer to the heart of God whenever you read what he says. But one of his things that he enjoyed to do in his spare time was going to the circus. He watched it all the time. And his favorite act was the flying trapeze. That thing when you've got two people, you know, swinging about backwards and forwards and one lets go and tumbles and tumbles through the air and they catch them and it always seems to work. Nobody dies. It all goes well. He would go all the time trying to figure out how they did this and what actually happened. And he came to realize The real star of the show was not the person who's letting go and swinging through the air, tumbling forwards or backwards. The real person, hero, was the catcher. You see, in order to do the flying trapeze, the person that's flying through the air, they don't do any catching. They just fly with their arms out. The catcher who's dangling by their legs on a bar, they're responsible for absolutely everything. The catcher does the catching. Henry had gone there often enough that the circus one time allowed him to have a go at doing this. They'd trained him up and he records in his journal the words that the person in charge of this event said to him, all you have to do is let go and fly and trust. The catcher will catch. I think it's a fascinating picture of life with God. Let go and trust We're halfway through a season that we call Lent. It's the period of preparation leading up to Easter time. And we're halfway through our little series called When You Pray, looking at the prayers that Jesus spoke, recorded for us in the New Testament. And today we find ourselves in John chapter 12, if you want to read along with me, a very short prayer. It's just a couple of verses. And we find it in John chapter 12, verse 27. We read this as Jesus speaks. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it's for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Sometimes I think many of us get to imagining, I know I have at times, that only kind of super religious people are good at praying. They're very eloquent. They always know what to say. And God seems to pay a lot of attention to them. And the rest of us, we kind of mumble our way through. We're not too sure what to say, how to say it. We definitely don't want to be saying it out loud. And we really struggle with some of this. And yet in reality, prayer is a whole lot more like breathing. It's just you breathe in and you breathe out. That's really all there is to it. Nobody ever compliments another person and goes, hey, dude, you're really good at breathing. That's amazing how you can do that. (laughs) And that's prayer. We talk to God and we listen for his response. We open our hearts. We talk and we listen, even with faltering words. And that's really what's going on here in John chapter 12. And Jesus begins his prayer with a lot of honesty. Now my soul is troubled. 
You can read something similar to that in Hebrews chapter 5. We read these words, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Like any other 33-year-old, Jesus was not keen to die. And in many ways, Jesus feared dying. And I want you to hear me well. Jesus was afraid. He was afraid. We listen to something of his inner turmoil here. His heart is troubled. He's already beginning to go through the agony that we will see later on when he's in a garden praying for his final time and talking with his father. It surprises us to say that Jesus was afraid, but it shouldn't. After all, Jesus was as human as you or I. And this moving account of Jesus' humanity reveals it to us. He's just like us. Some of you may know an old hymn written by a hymn writer, Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Anybody know it? The words that you sing are not the real words. <laughs> His editor changed it. When Isaac wrote the words, he wrote this, When I survey the wondrous cross where the young prince of glory died. His editor took the word young out. But Jesus was young. He's a red-blooded 33-year-old young man who is facing the horror of death, and he was scared. John Chrysostom is one of my favorite preachers from the early church in the 300s AD. I know this makes me really nerdy that I do stuff like this and read sermons that are like, you know, 1700 years old. But he writes this in a sermon that he preached on this passage. He said, this instance, what we read in John 12, greatly shows Jesus' humanity and a nature unwilling to die, but clinging to the present life. Proving that he was not exempt from human feelings. For as it is no blame to be hungry or to sleep, so neither is it to desire the present life. For Christ indeed had a body pure from sin, yet not free from natural wants. For then it would not be a body. He wouldn't be like us. It's natural not to want to die. And Jesus knows his death is imminent and he's troubled. But how come? How did he know? I mean, he says this now in verse 27. How does he know? Well, we need to back up a little bit in chapter 12. Look at verse 20 with me. And Jesus says, we read this, John says this. Now, among, among those who were sent up to worship at the festival were some Greeks they came to Philip, this is one of the followers of Jesus, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I love the request of these Greek people saying, sir, we wish to see Jesus. What a great request. I mean, imagine if that was how we began our day every day, saying we want to see Jesus. Get up in the morning, open your eyes. I know it's groggy because we're an hour out today, but you want to see Jesus. Honestly, my first thought this morning when I woke up, I want to see an Advil. I need one. <laughs> but what if it was I want to see Jesus? And we need to pay attention. All right, let it go, let it go. 
Well, you need to pay attention to who's doing the asking. Some Greeks. That doesn't seem very significant because Jerusalem was filled with religious tourists. It was then. It still is today. And you've probably gone somewhere and asked for directions doing that sort of thing to a concert, a game, or a museum. Maybe you've been traveling. Excuse me, can you tell me where the Colosseum is? How do I get to the Eiffel Tower? We get that sort of thing. But Jesus' response to their questioning is quite unusual. He says, the hour has come. What on earth is that all about? The hour has come. Well, we need to go back further still if you want to get this part. John's account of the life of Jesus in chapter 1 begins before Jesus is born from all eternity. It begins with these words, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. But very quickly it switches and we encounter Jesus as a grown man. He's baptized. He calls his disciples to follow him and then he goes to a wedding party. And it's a big knees up, lots of things going on, but this wedding was in danger of crashing because they were running out of wine. And so his mum gets him involved to fix things. You maybe know the story of Jesus turning water into wine. But right in the middle of his mother twisting his arm, we read this in chapter two. Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is it that to me and to you, my hour has not yet come. If I spoke to my mum like that, I'd get a slap. (laughs) Woman. But it's a phrase you read in John's gospel. You keep reading it. My hour has not yet come. John chapter 7. They tried to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because the hour had not yet come. John chapter 8. He spoke these words in the treasury of the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Something shifts from my hour has not yet come to the hour has come. What changed? Well, there's another clue we can find in chapter 10 of John's account of Jesus' life. Jesus has been teaching people about the good shepherd. You may recall that sort of story. We've seen pictures of it. Jesus, a shepherd holding a little lamb. And he talks about a good shepherd, one who protects the sheep, one who will lead the sheep and the sheep follow because they recognize his voice. One who would even lay down his life to rescue or save his sheep. And Jesus clearly identifies himself as this good shepherd. But then he says, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. When I was a kid, my parents used to get this quarterly magazine. It was a missions magazine called The Other Sheep. And the focus was on things that were far away from where we live, different locations, different languages, different cultures, different people in so many ways. And the magazine title, I didn't know as a kid, I do now, came from this verse, the other sheep. And who are these other sheep? Jesus has spent the past three years of his life preaching and teaching and healing and partying and celebrating with people who were just like him. They lived in the same place, they spoke the same language, they were part of the same culture. But there are different people showing up here now in chapter 12 when Jesus says the hour has come. The other sheep have turned up. These Greek people have turned up. People from a different place and a different language and a different culture. The moment has arrived where a new phase of Jesus' ministry is going to begin. An advanced group, if you like, these Greeks, representative of millions of people around our world and through history who have chosen to follow Jesus. Those other sheep include us. Something new happens here. And Jesus says the hour has come. 
Four simple words, but a profound meaning. Jesus had already taught them that the good shepherd would lay down his life. And here in chapter 12 and verse 24, Jesus says this very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life, this life will lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Jesus uses an agricultural metaphor that was very easy for those people to understand. Easy enough for us to understand, even though we live in a big city. The grain of wheat is doing nothing on its own, but when it's buried in the ground, when it's planted, it's kind of like it's being buried and died. But there it will begin to germinate and grow and something will happen. Fruit will emerge. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that to stop and break the power of sin and death in the lives of people like you and me, something had to happen. He had to stop the freight train of death in its tracks. But to do that would cost him his life. He had come to rescue us from these powers that overwhelm us. They try to destroy us, but instead Jesus would destroy them. In fact, he went on to say in verse 32, if you keep reading in this chapter, he says this, the light that is in, oh, wrong verse, 32. I try and find my numbers here. I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. He's telling us, God's got this. God's got this. He's got a way to meet the requirements for our forgiveness. He's got a way to cancel this death sentence, the penalty for sin. He's got a way to pay the bill. He's got a way to break and destroy the power of sin and death in our lives. He has a way to destroy evil. That's who Jesus is. In John's first letter to the church, he says this, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Sin atoned for. Atone's not a word that we use very often in day-to-day life. Really, it just simply means to cover. It's a simple word. In some ways, somebody might choose to cover a debt for you, which is probably unusual. We're more familiar with sitting in a restaurant and the battle of the credit cards is going on and somebody gets to say, I've got this. That's atonement. That's what it is. I've got this. And Jesus has got this for us so that right now you can know and experience God's forgiveness. Right now you can know and experience a restored relationship with God. Right now you can experience being part of God's family, a brand new family. Right now you can discover God's grace in your life. Right now you could feel and know Jesus setting you free because God's got this. So what did Jesus pray? Troubled as he was, knowing his hour had come, what did he pray? His words, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It's for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Four more simple words. Father, glorify your name. But how does dying do that? How does somebody dying glorify God. What's that about? 
I want us to look quickly at an Old Testament story that actually helps us understand what's going on with glory and these bizarre words of Jesus. It's the story of the prophet Isaiah early on in his journey. He wrote a big long book, but in chapter six, we read part of his life story at a tender moment when he was fairly young. Chapter six, verse one says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, each has six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell or live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Isaiah, he's in the temple in Jerusalem. You've probably seen a photograph, at least, of the Dome of the Rock on the top of the Temple Mount. Similar size building, and it's visible from miles away. It's an amazing place to go and have a look. And that's where Isaiah had gone, to mourn the death of his king, his friend. His heart was broken, and we know that when we lose a loved one. We know the pain and agony that that brings. We understand that. But this encounter wasn't like anything that's normal for Isaiah or even for us. It wasn't a a kind of a sense of God's presence, a a comforting thought, a, a feeling of peace, a warm sensation. This was the manifold visible presence of God, the kind of moment that you throw yourself on the floor and prepare to die. And God in this moment wanted Isaiah to grasp something of his glory and give him a glimpse of who he was. And we know that Isaiah is only experiencing a fraction of who God is. After all, God told Moses, his friend and servant, he said, nobody can see me and live. And yet at Moses' request, God said in Exodus 33, he'd give him a little glimpse, just a glimpse. And that's kind of what Isaiah gets here, just a glimpse, dialed down, veiled, kind of cloudy and smoky, but he sees something. And it knocked him to the floor. You see, glory really means, in a sense, weightiness. Not the standing on the scales in the morning kind of thing. My ritual, when you look at it and think, I'm getting more glorious all the time. It's it's more like if a kid drops a big toy into the bath and it goes splash. Or somebody dive bombs into a lake and there's a big splash. Or someone hucks a rock into a lake and there's a big splash. Something heavier than water does it, and the water goes everywhere, makes a mess, or at least rearranges things. When God drops into our lives, he is weightier than we are. He's the rock, you're the water, there's going to be a splash. That's what we're hearing. Your life will shift. God will rearrange things when he comes to your life. Everybody that's really met God in some way or another knows that their life has shifted because of God. The life you used to live, the things you valued most, the things that were significant for you begin to change. He changes how you think. He changes what you want. He changes how you feel. He changes how you choose. He changes what we think is right and wrong. 
It's not just beliefs, it's goals, it's agendas and habits and plans. Everything shifts, even the way we spend money. At one point in time, chuck a five in and say, thanks God. And then we discover God's amazing generosity to us and he helps us to reciprocate that. Because when you encounter God's weightiness, when he splashes into your life, things change. The reality is you're living in the splash zone. It's where God is more real and more permanent and more important than all of our own choices and preferences and decisions. Is your life bent around the gravitational center that is God and his glory? Do you know that you live in the splash zone because God has dropped into your life and changed everything? Or do you still need to meet Jesus? Hmm. We live in the splash zone. Isaiah went to the temple that day in Jerusalem, just like he did every other week. Same as usual, expecting that. And this time his world is rocked because he meets the one person there he didn't plan on meeting. Kind of like us. We come to church and you meet the one person you didn't plan to meet, God himself. But picture it. He's there, his wife, his friends, he's doing his thing. And then he has this actual encounter with God. Imagine that happened to you. Like seriously, like really happened to you today. You just did this. Isaiah knew when he encountered God like this, he knew he was done for. He knew he needed help. He knew he needed to pray. And he began to pray, getting honest about his brokenness and his sinfulness and the habits and the people round about him. He knew he needed God's help and forgiveness. He knew he was in trouble. But God's grace, it splashes down, it shines through. Isaiah's sin is taken away. It's atoned for. And in this little encounter, we get some insight into the word glory that I think helps us. We're back with Jesus in chapter 12 of John's gospel and we read these words again now my soul is troubled and what should I say father save me from this hour no it's for this reason that I have come to this hour father glorify your name then a voice came from heaven and said I have glorified it and I will glorify it again Jesus prays for God's glory And not just for himself. He's praying for us. In this moment, he's actually praying for you. He's praying for you because we really know nothing about God's glory. He's praying for the weight of God's glory to splash down in your life and rearrange absolutely everything about you. He's praying for you. And did you notice what Jesus didn't pray? He didn't pray, save me from this hour. There's no prayer for help. There's no prayer for an easier path. There's no prayer for someone else to do this. There's no prayer to put it off for a few more years. He didn't pray, save me. Why not? Because he knew this is why he came. This was his hour. Jesus had known that eventually it would come to this. Back in chapter 6, he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He knew that we needed help. He knew that our sin had to be atoned for. He knew that we needed a divine rescue. He knew that saving our lives would cost his life. He knew that the cross was where God's glory would meet our need. And what happens when that occurs? What happens when God's glory meets our need? Forgiveness of sin. 
freedom from guilt and from shame, peace with God, a new family, God's family, a new purpose as we participate in God's grand plan to make everything new about our world, a new life with God's spirit living within you, strengthening you, enabling you and changing you. Transformation that happens, maybe not all at once, but it happens and it keeps on happening. A remarkable adventure begins. It did for Isaiah that day he saw God in the temple and chose to surrender and let go. God commissioned him to be a prophet that day. It did for Father Abraham right at the beginning of our Bibles. The day he surrendered to God and let go and he packed up as God told him to. He left home, he left his family, he left his country and went heading to a place he didn't know because God said he'd show him. It happened all through the book of Acts as people encountered Jesus raised from the dead. These first followers of Jesus, they'd sell spare property they had to make things happen. They would travel around the world to make sure people knew the story of Jesus. And after Easter, we're going to take some time walking our way through the book of Acts and reading about these people. You could go on and on, story after story of people who have encountered God. And the result is because of the big splash, everything changes. Everything becomes available to God and they change, become better people, less selfish, less angry, less materialistic and jealous. We become healthier emotionally, spiritually. Our relationships are marked by courage and restoration. This deep inner renewal happens when we encounter God and his glory the way Jesus prayed for us. And then there was the voice. God spoke. If you read through the stories of Jesus, you'll discover this is the third time God spoke audibly. The first time was when Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The second time was on what we call a Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is on top of the mountain. His disciples are hanging out watching what's going on and Jesus kind of starts glowing in the dark and Moses and Elijah show up and God speaks. And here's the third encounter where God begins to speak like this. And God says in chapter 12, I have glorified it. God had already splashed down in the person of Jesus, making a difference all throughout Galilee and Judea. Lives were being changed. People saw it and experienced it. And God says, I will glorify it again. Jesus would be lifted up in glory on a Roman cross. His agony, his suffering, his surrender, his letting go of his life for you is his glory. If you want to see what God looks like, look at Jesus on a cross. He did it for you. And Jesus would be lifted even higher, raised to new life ascended on high to sit on the throne of the universe at the right side of the Father where he's praying for you. This weekend, we're baptizing people at all of our services, all of our campuses, all of our congregations. There's 20-some people being baptized this weekend. They're literally living in the splash zone, going into the water, symbolizing surrender, letting go, saying yes to Jesus, the end of an old way of life. God splashes down and changes it and rising up the new life that radiates with God's glory because everybody changes. In a moment or two, we're going to be able to celebrate together with people who have encountered God's glory, with people who have heard God's voice, with people who have surrendered everything to God and let go. It's a remarkable moment, not just to celebrate new life, but to celebrate Jesus who brings new life. Have you surrendered everything to Jesus? He'd made this little video several weeks ago to show 
in different venues where I wouldn't be this morning because I wanted people to see a little bit of my story. I kind of felt awkward about doing it here, but everybody's encouraged me to share it. And so as you watch this, this is my story of surrender, my story of choosing Jesus above everything. It's one poor guy's feeble attempt to tell you who Jesus is. Twenty sixteen. One day I woke up and wasn't feeling very well. My wife Jillian went off to work and came home to see how I was doing at lunchtime. And when she found me I was incoherent and eventually had to call for medical assistance and I got taken off by an ambulance. Nobody was sure what was wrong and I went back home and rested for a while and got back to work. But in the next several weeks, repeatedly I began to fall over, just collapse on the floor and take quite some time to come back around again. There were several trips in and out of hospital. The last time I was taken into emergency, fortunately I was on a halter monitor at the time. And while I was waiting to be admitted, my heart actually stopped and they saw it on there. Of course, I knew nothing about it because I'm unconscious. But there was a great flurry of activity and I was very quickly moved from emergency into ICU. I was connected to far more machines than I'd ever seen before in my life. And over the course of the week that I spent there, I began to realize how seriously ill I was. And this wasn't something the few pills were going to fix. They had attached me to an external pacemaker machine, which if you've ever seen somebody receive paddles for an AED, it's essentially like that, only they're permanently stuck onto your body front and back. That if my heart got too slow or it stopped again, they would fire off. It lines in and wires everywhere. It was really uncomfortable. And I remember thinking one day, my world has really shrunk. Now I have a little table with a cell phone and a glass of water and a button to press if I'm in distress. That's it. And I realized how little my world had become. I didn't get to see my kids. They're overseas. I could only see Jillian now and again when they would let her in. And eventually they discovered that my heart wasn't broken. There's nothing wrong with it. I didn't have a heart attack. But something was blocking the electrical signal, turning it off. And it would turn off, and it would turn on all by itself. But you leave that off too long, something bad's going to happen. And they decided at some point they were going to have to intervene in some fairly serious ways. One night when I'm trying to figure all of this out, I'm just lying in bed, lonely, scared too, to be honest, and was trying to read some words of scripture to myself that I've been trying to memorize. I love the book of Philippians. It's all full of joy and happiness and yay, God. I love in chapter one, and Paul says, I'm confident that the one who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. That's exciting. But I know as I kept going, I'd get to verse 21. And Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in the moment, that didn't really sound very exciting. Honestly, it's more terrifying. I thought either this thing's going to blast me with an electric shock again in my chest or the reality I felt. And I don't know if it was God saying it to me or I'm imagining this. But in the moment, it felt to me, if I say this, I'm going to die. And I didn't want to die. I didn't want to leave my wife living here in a room in this city with her family half a world away. I didn't want to leave my kids in the far side of the world and never see them again, never get a chance to say goodbye. I didn't want to. But it was as though God kept prompting me, say the words, say it out loud, say it. And I didn't, not for a very long time. I just lay in bed. 
till eventually I gave in, or maybe it is the words let go or surrendered, or chose Jesus over everything else, but eventually I said it and I closed my eyes. And I recited those words of Paul, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And then I waited, eyes closed. The machine didn't go off. That's always a good thing. But then maybe I was already dead. I didn't know that either. So when I opened my eyes, you're trying to see, do you see the white light? Can you see Jesus? And I was still in the same room, with machines still beeping, nurses coming to see how I was doing. Was it all in my head? I don't know, maybe. Was it God's Spirit really challenging me about what matters most in my life, to truly surrender? I think so. But in the moment I prayed that, something changed for me. I didn't get better all of a sudden. I still had to have a pacemaker fitted. I still have been in and out of hospital for all sorts of reasons. But in the moment, I discovered what it was to choose Jesus above everything else, to let go and say and mean it. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 